Good morning. It's, it's good to be gathered here on the Lord's Day, isn't it? To come and praise Him, to come and worship Him, and to come under His teaching. And welcome if you're joining us online, and we pray we'd know God's blessing. Let's just commit our time to God in prayer. Father God, we ask that as we gather in your name, that you would be with us. We ask that as we come on your day, you would give us a rest from any distraction from the week that's just gone or the week that's coming. And we pray that we would be able to truly worship you because of what Jesus has done. Amen. We're going to um, start with a short reading from Psalm 119. John is moving into Luke 20 today, and I've often marvelled at the way Jesus answers those round about him. And I thought we'd just focus our mind to look at verses 97 to 104. So 97 to 104. And this is David as he writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And we acknowledge, don't we, that it's God who is our teacher. Well, just before we sing, we've just got a few notices. One is on Thursday, we have our anniversary service. And John Benton is coming to preach to us. The service is half an hour earlier for a Thursday, so it's 7 o'clock, not 7.30. And on next Sunday, we're hoping to sing after the evening service, so we're starting that service half an hour earlier too. So 6 o'clock for Sunday evening. And just one final thing is, we now can use the Bibles at the back of the church if you so want to. So the Bibles are available to use. Just ask that if you use one, you can pop it on the tables at the exit as you leave, just so they can be quarantined, um, ready for next week. So Bibles are available for those who would like to use them. Well, let's come in our worship to God with our first hymn, which is, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, Nought be all else to me, save that Thou art, Thou my best thought, by day or by night, Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Let's stand as we worship.
we're going to come to our God in prayer. Then afterwards, John H. is going to come and do the children's talk. Let's pray to God. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you as we think about all those be thous in the song that we have just reflected on. We acknowledge that we need you in our lives because we are sinful, because we are helpless, because without you we can do nothing. Lord God, we're so thankful that you took that initiative, you, t- you came up with that rescue plan. You left heaven above, left the perfection of glory and came down to die on the cross. You came down so that you could be a sacrifice for us, so you could take the punishment for us, so that we could have that relationship with you, that relationship with the Father in heaven restored. And we thank you for your willingness in doing that. And we pray that you would draw us closer to you. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be active in convicting our hearts of sin. That he would be active in teaching us. That he would be active in pointing us to you more and more. We pray for any that do not know you. We pray that perhaps today, Lord, you would see fit to glory your name by bringing more people into your kingdom. We ask that as the word is brought to us, Lord, as John preaches to us, that hearts would be opened, they would be challenged, they would be pointed to you as the saviour. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it contains everything that we need in our lives. The relationship with you, And the truth about ourselves. The helps we need in our life as we go through the difficulties day by day. The thanksgiving that we can give as we have joy in the difficult world. But we pray as we read your word day by day. Lord, in the quietness of our own homes or wherever we read it. We ask that you would speak to us through it. We pray that your word would be changing our lives. As we've read in that psalm being able to read it and meditate it and love it. And then you teach us. Lord, you make us wise through it. And we pray that you would make us wise through your word and not make us worldly wise. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we have to teach your word, whether it's through the Sunday school that's just happened. We pray for that. We pray for the rooted. Lord, whether it's opportunities in the old people's homes with our older friends, we pray for John Martin as he speaks later this week. Lord, we pray for John Benton as he comes down on Thursday. Lord God, we thank you for the anniversary. Thank you for all those years, Lord, that the word has been faithfully preached, that you sustained us, you supplied us with people able to expound the word and to bring it to us. And we pray that you would continue to do that. We pray that the word would continue to be preached from here for many, many years to come. Lord God, we we want to thank you for those who do preach the word. We thank you for Mark and for John here. We pray you'd bless them. Help them as they, they study and prepare. And we pray that we would be blessed as you bless them. Father God, we acknowledge that As we live in a sinful world, there are many difficulties. Lord, and we are thankful that you encourage us to cast our cares and concerns on you. And we do so, and we pray for those who are struggling, whether it be mentally, whether it be physically. Lord, we pray for the continued success of the COVID vaccine. And we pray that life would return to normal. Lord, we thank you for the help given to scientists, for the help given to develop it. We thank you that it seems to be working. But we remember those who are in acute trouble at the moment. Lord, we commit to you, Paul and Becca Fizi and their little one Libby up in London. Thank you that you are being a strength to them, that you are comforting them. Thank you that you are giving them peace. Lord, we pray you'd help the, the doctors and the nurses as they seek to find out what's wrong with Libby. 
Thank you that they are narrowing it down, but we ask that your healing hand would be upon them. Lord, we thank you um, that Ophelia is back home. Thank you um, that she is no longer in hospital. But we do commit Joel and Emma to you as they seek to look after a child um, that is unwell. Lord, we pray your strength in hand would be with them. Lord, we remember Sandra in Cyprus. We thank you for the opportunity for a friend to be able to go back with her to Nigeria. And we pray in your sovereignty that would work out. Lord, we, as we think of Cyprus, we want to rejoice with them for their baptism. Thank you, another soul has been saved. And we pray that you would bless the work of James and Rachel there. And many more would come to know you and come into your kingdom. Lord God, we do remember your church worldwide. We thank you that the areas that are being really blessed and growing, but we remember that there are areas under extreme persecution. Lord, we pray for those who are facing persecution. Uh, and may they look to you for strength. May they see the suffering that you endured while you were here on this earth and realise that suffering glorifies you. But Lord, that's easy to pray for here. So we pray you'd strengthen them and that you'd be with them. Lord God, as we come again to your word, we pray that you'd be with John as he's with the children's talk. And again, we bring John Cowley to you as he preaches for the second time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, good morning. Good morning, children. And we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, because there's a birthday coming up this week, it's being celebrated. I wonder if you can guess how old. 189 years old. And they're actually looking quite young. I wonder if you can think of what I'm talking about. 189 years old, celebrating a birthday. 189 years old, looking quite young. Any guesses what I might be talking about? <clears throat> no? I'll tell you. This church... Okay, 189 years ago, uh, the gospel started being preached from this spot here at Forest Fold. And I say it looks quite young because lots of you look quite young. And um, so we are going to be celebrating that and thanking God for that. And if you like figures, um, it means that there's about 50,000 hours of worship have happened here. And so if we had a non-stop service starting now, okay, day and night, all right, it would take six years nearly, a six-year-long service. We'd need a couple of third hymns for that, wouldn't we? Uh, that would be a really long service. But what it is, is we've got so much to thank God for. And we haven't got much time, and it's really tricky to try and fit lots into a short time. So I'm going to try and do that. I've got a few photos I want to show you, and just talk a little bit about how things have changed uh, since the beginning. So what happened 189 years ago? Can we really imagine that? That would have been 1832. Uh, this guy is called George Doggett, and he was a farmer. He lived on the Buckhurst estate, and um, he was concerned that people weren't hearing the gospel. He was a Christian man. And I don't know if you've heard of the guy who had a dream. Well, this is him, but when he was a bit younger, when he was about 35, he had this dream one night, and he saw a raging sea and sailors struggling on the sea to find safety. But it wasn't really the sea he was seeing in his, his dream. It was a part of the forest, Ashdown Forest. And then there was a lighthouse shining out, a beam of light bringing people to safety. And uh, when he woke up, he thought, I, I'm sure I know that place. And so he went and found the place, and it was here. And what was here? Well, there was an old uh, barn, a thatched barn, a wooden barn with thatched roof. Uh, there was a couple of farmer's cottages, and there was a cow shed. And he realized that God was asking him to start a church here. So he cleaned the place out, swept it up put some seats in, and he started getting preachers to come and preach the gospel. And, um, and the Sunday school used to be in the cow shed. That would be an odd place to have Sunday school, wouldn't it? In a cow shed. What was Crowborough like? Well, it wasn't like a big town. It was mostly forest. And actually, it was quite a dangerous place to live. Lots of the people were foresters. Lots of the people uh, were farmers. And lots of people were very poor and just lived, lived in wooden huts. And at night time, there was a lot of poaching going on, probably from pens in the rocks, the big house, Buckhurst Estate, the big house there. 
lots of poaching, nicking animals at night, probably because people were so hungry. And there was lots of smuggling going on as well. So things would be imported into New Haven and Crowborough would be on the way up to London, a place to smuggle, smuggle tobacco and alcohol and silk so they didn't have to pay taxes for importing it into the country. And in fact, one of the preachers who came here, he came up from Brighton and he said to George after the service, he said, I was really worried about this lot. I, had, I couldn't even get my watch out to look at the time because I was afraid that somebody might steal my watch off me. Imagine preaching to a group of rough old people like that. And um, so that's what it was a bit like. And when they had a baptism, where there was no hole in the floor, they went out to probably the pond that's just down the road. And actually, they also had a hole in the burial ground at one stage, which really brings the illustration alive, doesn't it? And um, so, moving on, this guy is called Ebenezer Littleton. He was one of the pastors at the beginning, and he was a pastor here for 52 years. What a great beard he's got. It's a really cool beard, isn't it? And um, in this little book of history, it says that many of the children in the Sunday school, like you guys, became Christians and grew up in the church and lived useful lives in the church and sent their children to Sunday school. That's really encouraging, isn't it? That through all the 189 years, most of the time there's been a Sunday school here where children like you were probably living in a very different time. We're hearing the good news about Jesus. Yeah, so some of you are pointing up here, and that's where a lot of the memorial stones are to different people. Okay, well, this is probably, might be the oldest photograph we have. Okay, now that's from that field over there looking back this way, so it looks a bit different, doesn't it? But on the, on the right are the Young Life rooms up at the top. That was the Sunday school that was built, so that's where you'd have had Sunday school. And underneath where the toilets are now was some stables for six horses, because some people came by horse, lots of people walked, uh, but they wouldn't have had a car back then. What about this? Well, look, this is moving forward swiftly. This man here is Stanley Delves, and he's got a great beard too, hasn't he? Do you think he's got a great beard? I think he has. And um, you'll recognise two people there. Well, definitely one, Uncle Ron in the middle at the top, and maybe uh, on the top right, John Ralph. Uh, you probably won't recognise, well, some of you, if you're older, might know these people. Um, and um, uh, Stanley Dells was here for 54 years, so another long time of being a pastor. And, and one of the things that happened during his pastor was World War II. Okay? And quite often, do you remember the Battle of Britain? Perhaps you've thought about the Battle of Britain at school, where the planes flying over, uh, our British forces fighting off the enemy bombers from Germany. And quite often in this building, not in this building, but in this spot in the building that was here, you could hear the dogfights above during the service. And you could hear the planes firing at each other, and you could even hear the bullets landing on the roof of the chapel. So that must have been quite scary, mustn't it? Once uh, a, a German bomber came in to crash land and just scooped the top of the building, and some of the boys, what some of the boys did, who should have been in Sunday school, they ran off to go and see where the plane landed. Okay, so lots of lots of things going on. Just a couple here, just to show you what uh, that's what Forest Fold looked like. Uh, back in those days. So Chapel House looks different now, doesn't it? And do you know what? The Sunday school's shorter and the front of Chapel's looking quite different. Look at that. That's called an Allegro, that yellow car. <laughs> really funny shaped cars back in those days. And uh, some of us might recognise these photos a bit more before the, the church was extended. So the bottom one is now where we've got the front porch. So lots of things changing over the years. And, and you'll recognise most of these people. So then Mr. Rowell, who's in the middle, sitting down, and some of you related to him, and he was the pastor here for 24 years. And now John, on the right, is the pastor. I don't think John's going for the beard. So if you're going to be disappointed by that, he's probably not going to go for the beard. But what I was wanted to do this for is to see that how... Things have just changed so much. We can't really imagine what life would have been like uh, back in those days, can we? Now imagine if we could do some time travel, okay? And we'll bring Ebenezer Littleton back to Forest Fold, 180 years. He'd have a shock, wouldn't he, coming in here? And uh, all he'd be used to was a candle at night time for lighting his little cabin hut. Perhaps he'd just had ink and paper. He certainly would have had a car or anything. And uh, imagine if the tech team met him on the door and said, right, Pastor, could you email me your PowerPoint for Sunday? We'll project it on the wall and live stream the service to the elderly folk 
who are at home and they can hear and see you on their iPad they brought from Amazon through their Wi-Fi. And would you like a lift, by the way, home in my, um, my hybrid SUV? He would look completely confused, wouldn't he? What on earth are they talking about? But it's normal to us now, isn't it? So, so much has changed over the years, uh, but one thing has never changed. And that is we're still shining the same light of the gospel. The good news of Jesus hasn't changed at all. All of us need to repent of our sins, say sorry to God, and put our trust in Jesus and live our lives usefully for him. That's, that's been the same thing all through the years. Same message that the first pastor had, had and we still do today. And one of the things that Stanley Dells wrote in this book, he said, Generations have risen and passed away together with the pastors, but the truth of the Lord endures to all generations. See, we're not here for long. Our lives are short. And it's so important with what we do with them. And really, we just, you've know, all been in a relay race. Have you been in a relay race? Practicing for sports day? And, and you're, you're, you're the people are running and they give the baton to the next people. Well, all these people have been in the relay race. They've been carrying the gospel, shining the light out from Forest Fold to people who need safety in knowing Jesus. And, and they've, they've come to the end of their lives. They've passed the baton on to the next people. And, and us here, we're carrying the baton now. We're shining out the same good news of Jesus. And our prayer is, for you younger ones, that you'll come to follow God and know him and that you'll be getting ready to take the baton on from us oldies when our time is up. Good. Well done. Thank you for listening. Well, we're going to come to that unchanging word now uh, for our Bible reading this morning, which is in Luke 20. So Luke in chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 to 26. So Luke chapter 20 verses 1 through to 26. One day as Jesus was preaching the people in the temple uh, was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was it the baptism of John, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, and they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? For us to give tribute to Caesar, or not? But Jesus perceived their craftiness, and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marvelling at his answer, they became silent. And so read God's word. Well, before John comes and and preaches to us, we're going to have our our second song, which is Christ Be In My Waking. It's quite a challenging song, isn't it? As we reflect on it, as we stand and worship God in it, How much of Christ is in our lives? Christ be in my waking as the sun is rising. In my day of working, with me every hour, Christ be in my resting as the day is ending, calming and refreshing, watching through the night. Let's stand and and reflect on this song.
Well, I hope you'll listen to me, even though I haven't got a white beard, and even though I haven't done 50 years. I especially hope you'll listen to me, because I'm going to be speaking from the Word of God, which is where we'll be this morning, as we carry on through Luke, and we've reached these verses that we read, which is Luke chapter 20. I don't know how good you feel at answering questions, how good you feel at answering questions, and many of us feel pretty hopeless at answering people's questions, and it probably keeps us actually from talking to people uh, more than we should, because actually the Lord often helps us in those circumstances, but uh, we, we don't always feel terribly good at answering questions. We think we're going to be bad, perhaps we look back and we feel we've made some mistakes. Well, Jesus, God's Son, possessed immense wisdom. In fact, it says that a a greater than Solomon is here. Somebody of greater wisdom than Solomon is here. And uh, in this next chapter that we look at, Luke chapter 20, we see questions bold at him. And like a master batsman, he handles each of the questions that comes his way. Uh, The questions are coming from advanced minds or taught minds, should be. They're from the religious leaders. But they're not really fair-minded questions. They're not honest inquiries. Uh, Rather, they're more poisoned than that. They come from a position of hostility to Jesus. There's questions through most of this chapter, but it's too big a thing to take the whole chapter. Perhaps you feel I've taken too big a uh, chunk already, but it would be too big to take the whole chapter. So we're going to focus on the first three parts in Luke chapter 20, when we have we have a challenge, we have a story, and we have a coin. And as we look at this, we'll notice not only that Jesus handles these questions and the things that come his way very wisely, we'll see that what he says rebounds on the hearers. That in a way they want to put him in the dock, but by the way he handles it, they end up in the dock. So as we look this morning, we might be impressed with Jesus and his wisdom, I hope so, But I think we might also feel a bit uncomfortable as we think about the implications of what Jesus is teaching. I've called it, Wise Answers Expose Hearts. Uh, We have smart equipment these days that show what's really going on in our hearts. So you can have an ECG or an MRI scan. Well, Jesus' smart answers can reveal what's going on in our hearts. So maybe something of that will happen this morning. Let's look firstly then at a challenge. This is the first eight verses. Jesus was teaching the good news. The light from the lighthouse, if you like, was going out. It's a good reminder that when we're in a chapter of some controversies, we need to remember that Jesus' coming is really good news and he is teaching the gospel, we're told. And then a three-pronged group of leaders comes to him. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes. They've been struck by Jesus' teaching, but probably even more by his temple clearance that we read about last week. And they challenge him about his authority. And you read that in verse 2. Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? They're probably hoping to get some evidence for some blasphemy charges against Jesus. Well, a skill that I've yet to learn properly is to answer a question with a question. can be really helpful to get people thinking more to get them to understand why they're asking what they're asking. In fact, there's a book on it called Question in Evangelism. Jesus often does that. And where I fail to do that, and maybe you do, Jesus is a master of it. This is his reply in verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question, 
Now tell me, was the baptism or the, the ministry of John from heaven or from man? Uh, John the Baptist, though executed, was still held in high esteem amongst the people of that day. So what Jesus asked them poses them a real problem. And they retreat for a little bit of time out. You picture them whispering together in a group, wondering what to do with the question that Jesus has asked about the authority of John the Baptist. There seem to be two main options, but neither of them look particularly good for this group of religious leaders. And one of them, in fact, could get them in big trouble. We can hear their whispers in verses 5 and 6. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him, John the Baptist? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they decide on a fudge to keep them out of trouble. And in verse 7, so they answered him that they did not know where it came from. Well, with Jesus not answering, with them not answering Jesus' question, he doesn't feel any need to answer their question. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they don't manage to trap Jesus, but they do avoid the complaints and even more the stones that they think could have come their way. But what they, they don't seem to register is how twisted their hearts and minds are. John the Baptist was clearly from God and they hadn't believed him, they hadn't accepted his message. One of John the Baptist's main message was to point to Jesus and now they weren't believing Jesus either. It's as if Jesus is saying, your trouble is that you don't believe God's work and you don't believe God's messengers when they're right in front of you. You look to protect your power bases You look to guard yourself and your reputations and you don't face up to the facts of what you're hearing. Their reaction should have been, of course we should have listened to John, he was obviously from God and now we should listen to Jesus, he's obviously from God. Their non-answer is, if you like, a smokescreen. Did you notice that their answer is an agnostic answer? Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Agnosticism is the response of quite a few people towards Jesus, towards God. Atheists, of course, don't believe in the existence of God. But agnostics would say they're not sure, they don't know about the existence of God. And some agnosticism can be genuine. People are thinking it through, perhaps they've not heard much before and they're investigating. But sometimes the agnostic response is really to to get us off the hook, is to duck the implications It's, if you like, intellectual cover for a godless life. I've sometimes been thoughtful about a a quote I read some years ago. It's about a, a, from an evolutionist, Sir Arthur Keith, the last century, and he said this, evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation, And that is unthinkable. Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation and that is unthinkable. You see, creation leads to a creator 
And that has big implications for us, obligations, a higher authority and accountability. And so it was a much more convenient position to have a, a different view because the idea of there being a God with some uh, responsibility to which is unthinkable. The implications were too big for life. So a position is taken instead. Well, perhaps you would call yourself an agnostic. I can ask you, is that to avoid the implications? Have you sort of landed on a position just to give yourself cover, just to keep God off your back, if you like? Is your agnosticism a smokescreen? Jesus has God's authority the implications of that are are unthinkable. We do not know. So Jesus deals with the the challenge of that question and he gets us thinking about what's going on in our hearts and the position we're taking. And then we next move on as we carry on through the chapter to a story. A story, that's in verses 9 to 18. It's the story of the wicked grape farmers. A a man plants uh, a vineyard. That's a big investment. There's a lot of work involved with getting a vineyard prepared and established. And he he lets out the the vineyard to to others, to, to farm, to harvest, to do the work. It happened a lot in those days and then those who did the work, the farmers would uh, reap in some of the grapes and a cup would be given to the owner. The profits, the produce would be shared. It was a reasonable deal. After a while, the, the landowner sends a servant to collect his share of the produce. That's fair dues, isn't it? Instead of giving him rent... They give him thumps. And the workers of the vineyard beat the owner's servants and they send him back with nothing. And you might think that the owner would send in the heavies right away. But the owner is very patient and sends a second servant. He's treated even worse. Not just beaten, but treated with shame and and humiliated. The owner is yet more patient and he sends in a third servant. But he's more savagely treated than the first two and he's wounded and cast out, he's expelled even from his own master's land. What does the owner do next? Verse 13 tells us, The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The picture is clear. You understand the story, the parable? God is the owner. Uh, Israel was his vineyard. That's part of the Old Testament imagery. Uh, We could say the, the earth is his vineyard. Where we are is his vineyard. I didn't just mean this building, but being being on the planet is part of being on God's vineyard. He's put us here to produce fruit. We should carry out our activities mindful of the owner and our sense of accountability, the one who made us. In the Old Testament times, God sent his prophets to Israel. His servants, they're called, with his message to the people. And they were badly treated, weren't they? Jeremiah was dropped into a a muddy cistern and left there. Isaiah was cut in two. Zechariah was killed in the very temple itself. And now, God sending his son, his own treasured, precious son, Surely they're going to hear his son when he comes. I like it the way it's put in Matthew in one of the translations. Surely they will respect my son. Well, how do the tenants 
treat the son of the landover? Do they respect his authority? Do they recognise his right? Verses 14 and 15. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so they will with Jesus. They reject Jesus, they will throw him out of the city. It was outside of the city wall, as the old hymn goes, that they execute the Son of God. Well, with the rejection of his son, the the Landover's patience in the story runs out. End of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. And Jesus underlines this by putting together a group of stone quotes from the Old Testament. One that's talking about a rejected stone, which turns out to be the most important stone in the building. And the one about the way in which rocks can be used as a form of judgment and punishment. And as he tells them, he looks intently at them. This is a deadly serious point that he's making. Let's read those quotes in verses 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, you don't need a volume on interpreting parables to get the gist of what this parable is about, do you? And they realised that in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that because they perceived that he told this parable against them. It had a relevance especially to the Jewish people of the first century. Uh, they were rejecting the Son of God, they'd rejected the, the prophets, um, there would be judgment on them, Jerusalem would fall in AD 70, the gospel would go out to the Gentiles, to another group of people. But the parable holds beyond the first century. Sometimes it helps, doesn't it, to see yourself in your proper light by hearing a story in which you feature. And perhaps you see yourself in this story as you've understood what Jesus said. God has kindly given you so much. You've got a home, it's produce, the stuff from the supermarket, You have several meals a day, you have variety. You've got a nice patch where you live. Many enjoyments, people that care for you. God has richly blessed you in his kindness and goodness. And yet, do you resent God having any call on your life and on your time? Maybe you've had warnings You think of the loving Sunday school teacher and what she used to tell you. Or you think of the camp leader who put it straight in his talk. You think of your close friend who's got alongside you and said some things which should give you a nudge in a better direction in life. You've had gospel messages here maybe or in another place of worship Yeah, has led to rejection. God has been very patient, repeatedly kind, and yet is it met with a a sort of stubbornness and an obstinacy and a, a lack of yielding to God, his servants and his son? 
His son has come. Surely you will respect his son. But maybe the the person who others so value as the, the, the great cornerstone that shapes the building so precious from which it all comes and to you it's just something that you've taken to the dump and thrown away with no interest. Well, the message of this story is clear that if our rejection of God, his messengers, his son, carries on, then there is a time's up. There is a judgment of the landowner. There is a time to give account. There is a time where his wrath will come to the surface. Does this speak into your situation? Is there some home truths coming into your own heart as you hear the story that Jesus told? Well then, as we move on, we also have a coin, verses 19 to 26. They're a bit more agitated now. They're keen to arrest Jesus, because they feel he's talking against them, but it's going to be difficult to do it directly because Jesus is popular amongst the crowd and they don't want a massive uproar and the Romans coming in on the scene. So instead they send spies to catch Jesus out. They're an insincere bunch. Uh, We hear about them in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. In what seems to be a cunning plan, they try and catch him out by getting him to side for or against the Romans. This seems a brilliant idea, doesn't it? If he sides with Rome, the people won't like him anymore because they don't like Rome. If he sides against Rome, well, the authorities will be on his back. So in their gooey flattery, they pose another question, verses 21 and 22. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus knows what they're up to and he's wise enough for the challenge. This is where the coin comes in. Show me a coin, he says. They're perhaps a bit reluctant. There were coins around, which weren't quite of the same ilk as we have here, but um, they've obviously got one of them. Maybe they're not too keen on showing it, giving who the picture is on the coin. But, uh, well, they had quite a bit of money. They were into money. We've seen that from the temple clearance. So they do show a coin, and Jesus asks, well, whose image is on it? Caesar, they had to admit. They didn't have a queen on their coins. Most of them had Caesar on their coins. And then with a great line, Jesus says this in verse 25. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's coins on it, this image on the coin, and to God the things that are God's. That's great wisdom in this short answer, you know. It avoids the trap. More than that, it gives um, a fundamental teaching about our obligations. Uh, God has put a, a state in places. Taxes are to be paid. Legislation is to be respected. But more than that, it makes us think deeper of our bigger obligation to God. What does God require? What does God require? Caesar has his requirements. What does God require? Well, Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 gives us a good answer for that. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God requires us to put him first. It's the right approach to life. It's the wise and the good approach to life. Our lives should be ordered by his wisdom. That's why we sung Christ be in my waking, thinking through the different aspects of our life and wanting out of love to have God acknowledged in all of them. And maybe, maybe we give the government what we ought to. And that's good. Maybe your PAYE is sorted out with your employer. Maybe you're genuine with your sort of self-assessment of your tax situation or your VAT returns or whatever for your business are, are all good and in order and that's good. Maybe you're an upright citizen before the law and that's good. You keep to what's decided. Perhaps you've been admirable, maybe even impeccable with respect to the COVID guidelines. Maybe you're the best person in your street in terms of keeping to the guidelines. You're the, you're the, you're the shining image in your family in the way in which you've kept to the guidelines. And that's good. And it respects authority and it protects others. But what about your heart and life? What about your obligation to God, your sense of God, your living out life for God? You render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but have you moved on to render to God what is God's? You know, you were made not with Caesar's image on you, but you were made with an image on you. Let's go back to the very first chapter in the Bible. This is a, a, a foundational teaching in many ways for some of the current debates. So you'll hear that by the way the verse ends, but we're concentrating at the start of the verse. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. You have God's image on you. You are made in God's image. You have a a way of thinking, an ability to respond, a a spiritual dimension, a sense of justice, a conscience. There's all sorts of things that God has done which mean that you're made in the image of God. Do you give yourself to God? They were religious, yet their hearts were full of greed and pride and selfishness. And they weren't giving to God what God was due. And maybe we look at our lives and say, we don't give to God what God is due. You know, I think Jesus not only shrugged off their question, but I think he focused a laser beam in their own hearts. A challenge, a story a coin. I don't know if you've had a, an ECG, perhaps you have, or an MRI scan on your heart. I, I hope the outcome was good, is good. But I suspect when we experience God's scan on our hearts that uh, the answer is not so positive. I've been reading Jeremiah the prophet, I've been getting all sorts of things out of Jeremiah, actually that I perhaps didn't realise how much I get out of Jeremiah. But there's this quote, what Jeremiah says about the heart in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Well, maybe you come away from these three episodes, challenge, story, coin. You're impressed with the wisdom of Jesus. I hope so. His insight, his understanding. But maybe you also come away conscious of the twistedness, the inadequacy of your own heart. Well, Jesus was going to the cross for those with 
bad hearts. There is a place of cleansing for those whose hearts are wrong and deceitful. And I think you might hear a bit more about that this evening as Mark leads us into 1 John 1 and the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Well, I hope amidst covering quite a big passage that you've been able to understand it, reflect on the wisdom of Jesus. I hope that God has used it as well to make you thoughtful about your own hearts, our own hearts. Just going to leave a few moments before I close in prayer. Maybe you want to pick up on one thing that's uh, struck you this morning and turn it into a, a personal prayer for yourself. we do thank you for the wisdom of Jesus his answers to the questions we pray to be wiser ourselves in dealing with questions that come our way Lord we thank you for the story he told Lord we thank you for your patience warning us we pray if we're still rejecting you that we might feel the challenge of that story We pray that we might recognise the authority of God when we see it and when we hear it in John the Baptist and in your Son. Help us, Lord, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But, Lord, help us to realise that you call on us to give you our hearts, that you should be first, that's the right place for you in our lives. And we pray that the challenge of that saying will come to us, stay with us, and maybe might draw us to repentance and faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.